The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Eighteen thousand people could be evacuated day by day over the summer, with just one or two flights a day. So this doesn't have to be chaotic. We have the time, although it's very limited, to do this well and smoothly and not create a scene. Just make sure we save lives. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th, 2021. The United States is quickly approaching its September deadline for a full military withdrawal from Afghanistan. As the U.S. completes its withdrawal, Many Afghans who partnered with the U.S., serving as translators and interpreters, face the danger of severe retribution from the Taliban. Those who partner with the U.S. military can obtain a Special Immigrant Visa, or SIV, through the U.S. State Department. But many lawmakers and veterans groups are concerned that the U.S. is running out of time to approve SIVs for its Afghan partners. To help make sense of it all, I sat down with Congressman Seth Moulton representative from Massachusetts who served as a Marine infantry officer in Iraq, and who is also a member of the Honoring Our Promises Working Group, a bipartisan group of lawmakers calling on the Biden administration to protect the U.S.'s Afghan partners. Congressman Moulton and I were joined by Matt Zeller, a Truman Center fellow and host of the Wartime Allies podcast, who served as a combat advisor with Afghan security forces. He is also the co-founder of No One Left Behind, a veterans organization that provides services to former Afghan and Iraqi interpreters who resettle in the United States. We covered a range of issues, including the risks that current and former U.S. partners in Afghanistan face, the obstacles in the SIV process, and a potential evacuation of U.S. partners to Guam. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th, Representative Seth Moulton and Matt Zeller on securing visas for U.S. partners in Afghanistan. So, Congressman, I want to start with you. The U.S. is set to complete its full military withdrawal from Afghanistan by September. Why is this issue of Afghan SIVs for U.S. partners so important at this moment? Because the lives of our friends and allies are on the line. These are people that we promised to take care of. When young Marines and soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan, just like those of us who are on the ground in Iraq, said to these Afghans, put your life at risk to work for us because we have your back. We're doing a good thing for your country. And we know that you're risking your lives, not just for Afghanistan, but for America. But if you do that, we'll protect you. We'll make sure that the Taliban doesn't come and kill you or your families. And that's a promise that we're going to have to make in the future, in other conflicts down the road. 
when young Americans need the help of allies on the ground, they're going to say, trust us because we're the United States of America. We're the U.S. Army. We're the United States Marine Corps. We will have your backs. And in that future conflict, if people look to Afghanistan and say, oh, no, we don't trust America because you left your Afghan friends to die. That will be not just a permanent stain on our reputation as Americans. It will be a massive national security risk because we need friends and allies all over the globe. Right. And and Matt, through your work with No One Left Behind, you're in communication with a lot of people in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could sort of illustrate for us what are some of the threats that these former interpreters and, and U.S. partners are facing? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's an honor to be here. There's an amazing organization actually called the Association of Wartime Allies that probably does the absolute best job at keeping in touch with the, the people abroad. Boy, do they have some harrowing tales to tell. Afghanistan is collapsing in real time. Every day we're seeing indicators more and more and more that the, the Taliban conquest is not coming. It's ongoing. We now know that the bulk of the special immigration visa population, for example, has congregated themselves in the major cities. They're no longer in the rural areas because they're under control by the Taliban. We have not just anecdotal reporting, actual factual press reporting that the Taliban have control of our biometric databases in Afghanistan and are now using them against our allies. They have erected checkpoints on the highways in between the cities where they are pulling people off buses screening them. And if they find out that you at any point ever worked for the Americans, they kill you. There's there's drone footage of, of these murders that are now being put up on the internet for all to consume. So what the congressman illuminates as a concern is not just some hypothetical. It's already started to occur. This is a, a never again moment in the making. And the Afghans get this. They're desperate to tell anybody who will listen that unlike the 1980s, there are a couple of key differences. When this collapse occurs, one, it's going to happen a lot faster than it did at the end of the, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan and the beginning of the Afghan civil war. The second is that unlike the 1980s, Afghanistan is now completely surrounded by fences with the, the countries that border it. So in the 80s, when the collapse occurred, a lot of people were able to run to Pakistan. A lot of people were able to get to places like Soviet Tajikistan and even Iran. Now, those countries all have erected borders with the Afghan country. There, there's, there's fences there. There's no way for them to, to just sneak into the country anymore. You have to either go through official border crossings or use commercial air travel. When we leave, the government of Turkey has been abundantly clear. They're going to take their force that currently guards the airport in Kabul with them. They actually asked the Taliban if they could let the Turks keep their force in Kabul after we depart, and the Taliban said no. So as soon as the Turks leave, there aren't going to be commercial flights that fly to and from Afghanistan anymore, which means there really is going to be no means for these people to escape. They're essentially trapped unless we take them with us now, and they get that. The Afghans understand that profoundly. They have been pleading on social media for anyone to listen that they want to be evacuated. They're desperate to get to, to the island of Guam, which is at this point our last best option to save these people. And the only question now is, do we keep this promise? Do we answer their pleas? 
Right, right. We'll get to the uh, to the Guam option a little bit later, but for now, I just want to take a step back. And, and Matt, as our resident uh, special immigrant visa expert, could you explain just on a very basic level, what are special immigrant visas and how do they differ from regular visas that some of our listeners might be familiar with? Sure. So special immigration visas are actually something that we've had now in its current form for the last 13 years. What happened was, was back in 2008, Congress looked at the Iraq and Afghan wars and they said, you know what, there's an, a number of our partners who are being threatened uh, because of their service with us. They're in duress. They're already being killed by our enemies. We need to have a pathway to get them and their family members to safety. And so they authorized the State Department to begin issuing something called the Special Immigration Visa. And how one receives one of these visas is there's a couple of hurdles you have to, to jump over. The first is someone like Congressman Moulton or myself, someone who served in uniform, has to actually recommend you for one of these visas. That recommendation has to show that the individual provided what's deemed as honorable and valuable service, and that that service had a total cumulative time period of at least 24 months. It doesn't have to be consecutive. It used to be, by the way, 12 months, uh, but then the Republican Party took over Congress at the end of the Obama administration, and people like Stephen Miller, who was a, a Hill staffer at the time, insisted that the rules be increased to 24 months. Little tidbit to keep in mind. The second hurdle that one needs to clear is they have to prove that they're in duress because of their service. And then the third hurdle is they have to pass the most arduous national security background investigation that our country can possibly muster. I've had Mitch McConnell's national security advisor say to my face that when when we talk about the special immigration program, quote, it's the gold standard as far as they're concerned when it comes to vetting our immigrants. The entire intelligence community has to weigh in on, on this person's ability to get in the United States. The decision to let them in has to be unanimous. So for example, the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA could all say, yeah, from our perspective, Mohammed so-and-so is good to come in the United States. But the Drug Enforcement Agency, which actually gets a vote in this, they might weigh in and say, no, there's something in our database that gives us a little concern on Mohammed. And because they say no, not only does Mohammed not get to get his visa, he's now barred from entering the United States forever, and he's put on the no-fly list for the rest of his life. I, I say this all because in, in the 13 years of the existence of this program, we've helped welcome just around 80,000 Iraqis and Afghans and their family members. And not a single one has ever been arrested, suspected of, detained, convicted, etc., of any type of links to terrorism or any nefarious individuals. These are all extremely patriotic people who are desperate to flee the people who are going to murder them because they stood shoulder to shoulder with us. So, so I was wondering if Matt or, or Congressman, you could walk us through the latest estimate of how large the backlog is for these SIVs and how many of you know these partners' family members are also trying to get them. Well, officially, there are 18,000 current applicants. Now, that number is likely to increase over the summer, especially if what Matt describes continues to be true, which is the Taliban takes over more of the country and threatens the lives or actually executes our allies that they catch there on the ground. This also doesn't count the family members, many of whom are persecuted for simply being associated with someone who worked for the Americans. So if we're going to do right by the Afghan people, by our allies on the ground, we have to evacuate more. But let's also put this in perspective. You know, we hear some people in the administration say, 
They don't want a Saigon-style last-minute mass evacuation. 18,000 people could be evacuated day by day over the summer with just one or two flights a day. So this doesn't have to be chaotic. We have the time, although it's very limited, to do this well and smoothly and not create a scene. Just make sure we save lives. That is such a cogent point that the congressman points out. The Association of Wartime Allies actually puts out a daily what they call evacuation tracker. Let's say we we use the arbitrary withdrawal date of September 11th. We would only have to be averaging three flights a day right now to get this done. Whereas if we're going to use the actual projected withdrawal date of the 4th of July, we're recording on this podcast on the 15th of June. If we started the evacuation today, we would have to be now doing a minimum of 17 flights a day, moving 3,800 people a day just to get this done. And so you have to understand it's an exponential curve. So every day now that passes between now and just the 4th of July, it's at least an additional flight or two flights a day. And that only is going to get more and more difficult as time goes on. If this gets down to, you know, one week remaining, you're talking about almost a hundred flights a day in some cases. So the congressman's right. If we did this very, very methodically with a much more longer runway, we could easily achieve this. It would not be chaotic and Saigon-like. Right, right. But uh, let's let's get back to special immigrant visas for the moment. Congressman Moulton, I'm, I'm wondering, in your view, what should Congress be doing about that issue specifically? The evacuation plan, some would say, is pretty much in the hands of, of the administration at this point. Well, of course, Congress should increase the numbers for special immigrant visas. I mean, that's something that I've been advocating for for years, and we have a fight about it every single year when we have the defense bill. So that's a no-brainer. It's something that has support on both sides of the aisle, mainly from veterans. Uh, Of course, there are anti-immigrant forces in Congress who fight us on this every year. But the bottom line is that it's an almost irrelevant discussion at this point. We don't have time for the special immigrant visa process. That can play out in a place like Guam, where we have the luxury and safety to take our time processing these immigrants one by one. What we need now is an evacuation. That's what will save their lives. Right. And you wrote a letter to the Biden administration with the Honoring Our Promises Working Group, a bipartisan group where you, you outlined sort of what you just said right now. I'm curious if you've, if you've gotten any updates on any evacuation planning to Guam. No, we haven't gotten any updates. We're already behind the curve. And I sent the letter on June 4th calling for an evacuation. That was 10 days ago now, and we haven't heard anything. We have fewer than 100 days until our stated withdrawal date. So we don't have any time to waste. Are there any other actions? This is open to, to either you, Matt, or, or the congressman. Are there any any other things that the Biden administration has been doing? I think they added 50 staff in, in Washington, D.C. to expedite the processing of applications. I mean, what, what are your what are your thoughts on those on those moves? Look, I know that there are people in the Biden administration, veterans in particular, who understand the urgency of this situation, who understand that there are lives on the line right now in Afghanistan, but but also get the fact that this will have major implications for our national security in the future, for our ability to find allies when we need them in some future conflict. But the bottom line is that they're not moving quickly enough. 
I, I don't know why the administration writ large can't make this a bigger priority. Because I know there are voices, not just in Congress, but from within the administration who are stressing this. But we've got to do more. I, I, to echo the congressman's point, you know, this is an administration that touts itself as a profound defender and champion of human rights. And, and the congressman and I both know the people within the administration, and they're exactly that. They are profound defenders and champions of human rights. And they do tout and, and want to you know, support and espouse bipartisan solutions. Well, the congressman has done just that. I, I can't think of another issue in which some of the folks who have signed on to these letters, you know, particularly in the Senate, agree on anything. You know, two of the Senate signatories to this process are Senators Ron Johnson and Patrick Leahy. I don't know of another issue that they're on uh, uh, you know, agreement with. There's a coalition now of, of massive number of, of veterans organizations to include people like the Student Veterans of America who barely ever get politically involved in issues like this. But as their leader said, this is just one of those never again moments where you got to stand up and, and do the right thing. You've got human rights organizations, faith-based organizations. There's a massive coalition of people screaming, get them to Guam. And the only person that's missing in action is the president. It's mind boggling. I think yesterday on um, on on one of the Sunday morning talk shows, Secretary Blinken was asked about this, and he said evacuation was the wrong was the wrong word to use in trying to get out U.S. partners. I'm I'm curious for both of your thoughts on that. I don't care what word they use. I mean, get over the semantics here. An evacuation is what's needed. Make it happen, and you can use whatever press plan you want. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I completely agree. You know, it's the, the scary thing was is that he knows that his own embassy has closed in Kabul because of COVID. They, they shut down on Friday and they've shut down indefinitely. And the last time they shut down due to COVID, they stopped processing visas for a year. The Congress is right. The semantics don't matter. It, you either get them to Guam or they're going to die. Well, let's, let's talk about some of the obstacles, COVID being one of them, of an actual evacuation plan to Guam. I'm curious, what, what other obstacles are there? Well, first of all, let's just put this in context here. I mean, Guam isn't necessarily the only place in the world where this can happen, but we've just done evacuations to Guam before. In 1975, we evacuated 140,000 Vietnamese to Guam for their visa processing. In 1996, we evacuated a couple thousand Kurds to Guam. And importantly, the people of Guam, under the leadership of their representative, are ready to accept these Afghan immigrants. Now, it took some work on Congress's side of things to make sure that that was the case, because 
initially when the idea for this plan came up, there was resistance among people in Guam. They were concerned about COVID. They were concerned about having this many Afghans come to their country. But heroically, the representative of Guam said, no, no, this is the right thing to do. I'm going to go convince my people, my constituents, that this is the right thing to do for our national security. He even told a moving story about how one of his family members had died serving in Afghanistan. And he said, this is what he would want us to do. So Guam is a good option because it's tried and true. And the representative to Congress from Guam uh, supports it. He did make a special request, though, that we ensure a vaccination plan so that COVID is not a problem. And he said, it's okay if we get them to Guam first and then vaccinate them when they arrive. Of course, we could also vaccinate them right now on the ground in Afghanistan. But the fact that our Kabul embassy, rather than going out and making sure we're vaccinating our friends and allies, is just closing down. Closing down when everyone in the embassy is vaccinated themselves, it just, it's wrong on several levels. There's a couple of other practical reasons why, why Guam also makes sense, in addition to the, the congressman's eloquent answer there. The first is that Guam is a direct plane flight away from Afghanistan, and that's really important because we don't have to stop anywhere to refuel. And there's, there's rules in international travel where even if you're just stopping to refuel somewhere, if you've got a plane load of people who aren't citizens of the country that you're landing in, you need to get special permission to land there. Because Guam is U.S. territory, we can just fly right to it. The other really big reason why, why we're, we're pushing for Guam, you know, others have talked about sending people potentially to Kuwait or to Bahrain or the UAE. Well, one, we have no idea if any of those countries actually want our Afghan allies. The second reason why we don't think they should go there is because none of those countries are signatories to the Refugee Convention. So anybody who's sent to those countries, one, could just end up in a tent city in the desert for a generation but two, they could also be deported back to Afghanistan. There's nothing to prevent that from happening. And if that occurred, they'd be murdered. Whereas if they land in Guam, our, our laws would prevent them from being able to be deported back to Afghanistan to be tortured. Uh, our immigration system functions more efficiently in Guam. And actually, I, I'm talking to the, the, the governor's office tomorrow along with, um, of, in Guam, along with the Chamber of Commerce. And what we've been told is thanks to, the, as the congressman pointed out, the leadership of their delegate now, uh, the island is seized an opportunity. Guam's economy is is been pretty much decimated by COVID. It, it's dependent on tourism. And so their hotels are currently sitting vacant. The other thing is, is that the economy's unemployment rate hovers right now around 20%. And most people are surviving off of federal assistance that's going to expire come September. So the thought is, well, if you could put these Afghans up in the hotels on Guam that are currently sitting vacant and have the federal government pick up the tab for their stay, Rather than just building tent cities on bases, you know, around the island, which, by the way, isn't practical because it's about to be typhoon season there. So that it's not like these people could live outside anyways. You could kill two birds with one stone. You help support the economy and you give the Afghans a temporary place to live. You know, there's just for a lot of reasons, it, it really Guam seems to be the place that makes the most sense. And from a personal standpoint, I, I hope we can make it happen because I served with the Guam National Guard in Afghanistan and the 368 were some of the finest soldiers I've ever had the honor and privilege of working alongside. And I know that having stood alongside shoulder to shoulder with these people I, and how well they represented their island, that the island stands ready to take care of these people now. And they, they want it to happen. 
So the U.S. as it's continuing its withdrawal, which by some reporting is actually ha- happening a little bit ahead of schedule. I'm just wondering, would there even be any infrastructure to implement an evacuation plan if this doesn't start happening sooner? Well, the bottom line is there needs to be because, look, a mass evacuation might look bad, but I guarantee you a mass slaughter looks worse. And so if we need to delay the withdrawal of U.S. troops to make this happen, then that's what we should do. And I guarantee you the troops on the ground in Afghanistan will agree with that. Look at how many veterans from all different political persuasions back here in America are saying that we need to do this. We just need to make this happen. Yeah, we're not going to reinvade Afghanistan to save these people. I mean, the congressman's right. The, the political reality is even if it got down to 100 people in Afghanistan as a residual force and then it just took months to remove them because we spent a greater time evacuating our Afghan allies, that's more politically tenable to, to push the withdrawal date out than it would be to think of it this way. Think of the headlines. American soldiers leave Afghanistan then the slaughter really starts, right? Then the, the what we've all been warning about really kicks off. And the question now becomes is, well, how do you save these people? And the, the actual reality at that point is you've got to send in combat forces to secure landing zones to do it all over again, which means more Americans could die. You're going to have, you know, violence and casualties on the ground on both sides. Nobody wants this. That's a that's not a politically tenable reality. You, you don't then see the headlines, Biden orders 82nd Airborne back into Afghanistan to secure airfields to save Afghans. That, that's not going to occur. If we don't take these people with us as we leave, we've signed their death warrant. I, I mean, this is the mistake that we made in Iraq. We withdrew so quickly that we had to send the troops back in to reinvade, to fight battles that we had already won. We absolutely cannot repeat that mistake in Afghanistan. The, the Washington Post, as of this morning, just announced that the, the Biden administration has admitted they have no air logistics package planned to support or defend our Afghan partners after we leave, meaning they're not going to use airstrikes to defend the Afghan military. And the Afghan military is holistically dependent on us for their gasoline. They're going to run out of gas within days after we leave. And their air dominance is what right now allows them to have any type of superiority on the battlefield. And if what is press reporting is true, that the Taliban have been buying up air surface to air missiles from Russia, the Afghan nascent Air Force, which is a couple of helicopters and planes, is going to be knocked out of the sky within, within a matter of weeks. So outside of direct partners of the United States, there may be many other Afghans who sort of sympathize with the United States or would otherwise be at risk if the Taliban were to take back the country, but they aren't even eligible for any of these SIV programs. I'm wondering for both of you, are there any legal avenues available for these people and what steps should the United States take for them? Yes, we're looking at expanding eligibility here in Congress. But once again, this is a place where the administration just needs to come in and do the right thing through executive action. They have the authority to make this happen. When we evacuated from Vietnam, we didn't just take the people who worked for us directly. We took their family members. We took as many people as we felt were at risk. It numbered 140,000. We're talking about a fraction of that from Afghanistan. And look at what those Vietnamese Americans have done over the last 40 years. 
they've been vibrant parts of our communities, our cities and towns all across America. So many friends of mine uh, have relatives who were evacuated from Vietnam by the United States. They're some of the most patriotic Americans I know because they saw America do the right thing. This is one of those moments that we will look back upon for decades to come. And we'll either say we did the right thing or we left our friends and allies to die. You know, the the interesting thing about that Vietnam evacuation is that it wasn't planned. It, It just happened. And that's the thing that keeps terrifying me is that we got lucky in Vietnam. Let me explain. We had an ocean to work with. Most of those 140,000 people were put on boats and they were put on boats by a guy named Dick Armitage, who just, who was a Navy SEAL, who was back as a contractor working in the docks in Saigon, who saw a crisis in place and just said, no, we're going to start loading as many people onto every ship as we can. And he had no authority to do any of this. There's a great documentary about, about this effort called Last Days in Vietnam. And what you realize in watching this documentary is that none of this was planned. It was just Americans rising to the occasion, trying to do the right thing. Afghanistan doesn't have an ocean to work with. It's landlocked. So this is why uh, there's such desperation here is because I want, as the congressman so eloquently put, that, that Vietnamese diaspora has been one of the most successful and proudly American. And I'd love to be able to say that that about this coming Afghan diaspora but the reality is, is that, you know, it feels like we're watching a train crash in action in which we all can agree that the train is going to derail and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But that while that train derails, it's also going to run into a village and we can evacuate the village if we do it right now, but not if while the train's derailing. Well, the train's Afghanistan, the village are these interpreters And it doesn't seem to be, again, you've got Congress doing all the right things. You've got the American government functioning as exactly as our founders has intended. The citizens brought an issue to government. The government is now trying to respond. And it's just, it's one person. There's only one person on the planet who can give the order. And thus far, he's been silent. I mean, I mean, the way that the way that you both portrayed this issue so far, it it seems like is is the only thing really just like a bureaucratic hang up on this or... I'm curious, what what is really stalling it? I mean, it really is a bureaucratic hang-up, but it's become a moral hang-up. And that's why it's so important that the administration acts. We've done as much as we can do in Congress. I mean, I hate to say that because you'd like to say there's always more, but this is out of our hands now. We can fix the SIV process, we can tinker with resolutions and more letters from bipartisan groups. We've already done all that. It's time for the administration to just tell DOD, evacuate these people because they are our friends and allies. It is the right thing to do. They are going to get executed and that's going to be terrible for us and for our national security. Not to mention the press that comes out of it. So I don't quite understand why it's so difficult just to give this order. I I just, I want to jump in here and ask, it wasn't really a secret that the U S was planning to withdraw from Afghanistan from the February, 2020 deal. 
that the Trump administration uh, signed with the Taliban and President Biden, you know, said we're going to begin our withdrawal on the date that that was signed in that deal. I mean, was there just no planning done for this beforehand? The Trump administration did nothing. They didn't seem to have a single plan in place for this withdrawal that President Trump insisted on himself. So there's a lot of blame to be put on the Trump administration. But, you know, when you're in the military, you just have to take responsibility for the situation as it is on the ground. And you can't waste time complaining about how you got there or whose fault it was that led you to this place. You just have to say, nope, this is my responsibility now and it's going to be on my shoulders to fix it. And that's what the Biden administration has to do. And whether they like it or not, a lot of the blame for this is ultimately going to be put on them, whether it's fair or not, because they are managing the actual withdrawal. For all the lack of planning that Trump and his people failed to do, the Biden administration has the ability to fix this. All right. So I just have um, sort of one final question, and we've been we've been talking about this quite a bit, but I want to get sort of both of your final takes on this. What is the U.S. risk by getting this wrong? Let's start with you, Matt. I'm only alive today talking to any of you because my Afghan interpreter saved my life in a battle 13 years ago when he shot and killed two Taliban fighters who were about to kill me. Um, he'd be the first person to tell you that the reason why he was standing next to me at my time of need was because he believed that the American people kept their word and that we were honorable people who could be trusted. If that's not true, if the world comes to believe that partnering with American forces is a death sentence, not just for, the, for anyone who does it, but also for their families, we're going to have to accept far higher casualty rates in future wars. That's the so what of this. We either, in addition to preventing a never again moment, which has been something that has been a, talked about my entire life, about how that's an obligation that we have as people to is to leave what we've, we've been given better than we found it and to prevent never again moments from occurring because they're, they're, they're supposed to be humanity's learning lessons and, and, and turning points, right? Well, here it is. It's a never again moment in the making. We can save these people. We have the technology. We have the capability. We even have the military saying that they want to get it done and they can get it done. And you've got, thanks to people like Congressman Moulton, You've got an entire Congress now saying, yep, we're going to figure out a way to pay for this. We're going to authorize it. Go out and do it. We have everything in place to prevent a never again moment. The question is, is now do we have the courage and conviction to do the right thing? I hope we do. Because if we don't, then it's going to mean a lot more Americans are going to die in future wars. And that means that we'll have failed not just our Afghans, but we'll also failed ourselves. That's the point. Matt said it so well that a lot of people just don't seem to get. This isn't just about Afghan lives. It's about American lives, too. It's about the lives of young Americans in future wars who will have to try to get allies to work with us. These Afghan friends and allies who were in the fight with us, they risked their lives not just for Afghanistan, but for America. By failing them now, we're risking not just these Afghan lives, but American lives too. That's why the stakes 
are so very high. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining me. All right, thank you, Bryce. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Thank you for listening.